Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today by the other co-host at Zacks Inv- of The Steady Investor, and that's Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. As always, good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. Um, it's a nice day here. It's nice and sunny here on the 43rd no, floor. Of, uh, for February, I mean, we're now March, what, 1st or March 2nd? March here? 2nd. March mm-hmm. 2nd here. And uh, it's a beautiful day in Chicago. It usually is not this warm in Chicago. So That's we're, right. we're, we're, again, concerned about uh, global warming conceivably, but it's a very, very nice day. Right. Uh, also, sunny climbs on the uh, on the equities market this week as well. So it was, we, it, it, we were talking right after the day of, of Trump's uh, address to Congress, and the market reacted very positively yeah. to it. It's selling off a little bit uh, today. Uh, but it heard all the points it was looking for in terms of changes in corporate tax. I mean, essentially what's happening is he is not proposing conservative uh, fiscal policies. He's trying to engage uh, decreased taxes Mm -hmm. and increased spending, which is highly stimulative uh, to the economy. Right. And at the same time, reduce taxes. So he's, you know, so the three things that, you know, basically are going to to hopefully grow uh, the economy, at least in the short run. Over the longer run, you know, a lot of conservatives have, uh, you know, they they, they do not want to take on, they have anathema to taking on debt. And Trump, because of his background, doesn't seem to be bothered by substantially increasing the debt load of the country. And so that should result in stimulus in the immediate term effect. Well, you know, and Trump comes from the real estate uh, right. venue, we, so there's lots of debt involved. Lots of debt, lots of debt in the real estate. Oh, right, so it's from where he's coming from. Yeah. Right? I can see that making some people nervous, though, but you're right. I think if they have a, a substantial uh, tax cut and... Uh, no, really- there's a tax cut and you increase government spending, Right. you, you, you effectively increase... The- debt. Right. And so you're increasing the debt, which means you're borrowing from the future to spend money today. Right. Well, uh, the day after tomorrow, when you've spent the money, the economy is going to be stimulated. So it's it's a it's exactly the policy that an economist would say would is what you would do in a recession, conceivably, uh, to stimulate the economy. And so he's doing this when we're not in a recession, and yeah. the uh, the anticipation is that the the stimulus is going to is going to cause uh, GDP growth to accelerate effectively. Okay, and um, and we've seen it in infrastructure companies as well. They've just shot through the roof. Steel companies, cement yeah. companies, all de- de- dedicated to this. Uh, I, I think it, it it certainly seems to be helping uh, the infrastructure companies. It seems to be helping the cyclical companies. Mm-hmm. Every single sector. He mentioned something in the speech that was positive. For the drug companies, he had a whole entire thing about reducing uh, regulation of approval of new drugs. Uh, for the steel companies, he mentioned they're going to be buying, uh, laying pipeline by buying it through U.S. Uh, steel manufacturers. So across the board, he made very specific things. And the most interesting thing is that he directly referenced the stock market, which presidents usually try not to do. So mm-hmm. the president usually in their speech talks about the economy, talks about unemployment, but they would rarely say the stock market is hitting a new high or this. And he directly pointed towards the market as an indication that his policies are working. 
which leads market participants to believe he's going to do everything he can to cause the market to go up. If he sees that as a reflection of how well his economic policies are working, he's going to be very focused on that uh, that result and trying to get the uh, the market to go higher. And that seems like it's just fomented more and more <coughs> positive sentiment. It, it, it's 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 <coughs> excuse me. The market is trading up very much uh, based upon the expectation of these changes materializing. The right. expectation. Uh, uh, the Treasury Secretary came out and said he expects the tax reforms to occur uh, by the end of August. And so there was a, b- a belief in the marketplace. 20% is sitting there saying, well, they won't get to the tax reforms until 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. And then 80% is saying, well, they'll try and do something now in the immediate uh, future when they have control of the Congress. And uh, when you have the Treasury Secretary coming out and saying, no, the 80% is what we think is going to happen, the market then prices in that 80% at a 90 or 95% chance of occurring. Okay. Uh, so, it, so it goes up. So what, what's happening is... The, the constant signaling you're getting from the administration is, one, they're very concerned about the stock market. They want the stock market to go up. They see the stock market as an indication of how well they are doing, mm-hmm. which is very unusual for president to say. Sure. Trump's an unusual right, president. Right. Two, uh, the tax cuts that are the primary driver of increase in, in uh, corporate uh, income is going to be dropped dramatically. So you look at a company like Berkshire Hathaway, uh, if they get those these tax cuts from 35% to 20% or 15%, yeah. it's a massive increase in corporate earnings and net income over time. Right. And so that's that's very, very positive. And so it, it, it's very, very – if these things – the market's pricing this in. Yeah. And so if it doesn't materialize, the market's going to take a tumble. But if it does materialize, you're going to see a permanent increase in corporate earnings. As an investor, this is a very, very positive thing. Right. And not necessarily, I want to ask you a question, too. Yeah. Uh, it's also, uh, now I want to get to a couple of features that we, uh, okay. we're we going to talk about. Uh, but uh, jobless claims uh, were the lowest since March of 1973. That's 44 years ago. Right. Um, if you uh, have this major um, corporate uh, tax cut yes. to a very low level, so a right. company like Berkshire Hathaway uh, has all this new uh, capital to play around with, it's not necessarily going to translate into new jobs, though, is it? It's it's possible. I mean, it's it's a question of what they're going to try and do. If the people are constantly still focused on their stock price, the most rational thing they would do, or the thing that would have the most immediate effect, mm-hmm. would be to take the increase in uh, after-tax earnings yeah. and buyback stock. Right. So if they increase their stock buybacks... Again, it's pushing the market higher. Right. So it goes directly to investors as opposed to trying uh, to go into sort of deployment of uh, growth capital. Right. And so the, the question is, how do you get the deployment of capital to result in an increase in uh, hiring of labor? And uh, that's, that's, you know, in that way, what what's going on with immigration is, is not positive, that they're trying to... They're trying to restrict the number of people coming into the country. Right. And then the second thing they're trying to do is they're trying to say, well, let's try and give a preference towards higher skilled uh, labor as opposed to lower skilled labor. Mm-hmm. The net effect of that is, is it decreases the supply of labor, which increases the cost of a lower skilled person, which forces these companies to move quicker towards automation. Right. Okay. So if you restrict immigration from Mexico completely 
and restaurants then have to pay more for a dishwasher or a busboy or a very, very low-skilled position. Mm -hmm. The net result of it is that the restaurant will start to look for automation uh, when they might not have before. Yeah, if right. If we increase the minimum wage dramatically, we triple it. Mm -hmm. A company that's very, very focused on minimum wage, like McDonald's, mm -hmm. would immediately start investing in automated technologies. Kiosks. Kiosks, and kiosks things, all sorts of ways to try and adjust mm -hmm. to it, uh, to try and try and do it. If you kept the, the minimum wage low, McDonald's says business as usual. Let's build a new store and let's try and staff it the same way we have before. Sure. So the issue is that the idea of restricting labor to increase wages may in fact have the opposite effect because it increases automation. Right. And this has another risk then because if you're talking about uh, the market's going up and the dollar is strong and everything, but you're going to keep wages for employee uh, for for lower lower level employees lower or have no job right. at all for them that's a big uh, a, the, a big the issue is the issue really is that what what the what what is happening is that corporate it, it's like if you look at the productivity numbers the productivity is not increasing over time right because what's happening effectively is the jobs that are being added are lower wage positions so the total yeah. GDP isn't increasing if you, I mean, productivity is very straightforward. GDP divided by the number of people. So if you have GDP growing mm -hmm. and you have an increase in low wage employees or low wage earners, the productivity of each of those people is, is not going to be seen going up and the wages are not going to go up. But if you force the low, uh, the low uh, skilled wages to increase by reducing immigration or increasing the minimum wage, which has the same effect, you're going to just increase this movement towards automation. Yeah. And that's the concern here is that if cab drivers were paid three times as much money because of some sort of structural change in the economy, uh, you would see the movement towards self-driving cars to dramatically increase. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, so that's the concern here. The concern is that by reducing low-level labor participation or low-skilled labor participation in the U.S. workforce, you're actually increasing the chance of automation uh, being adopted or being adopted quicker. Which would generate a spike in unemployment again. Which would, which would generate a spike in unemployment, but you have to realize that it makes, what, what happens is the, the it, it's like becoming a barbell economy a little bit where there's demand for this very high-skilled labor and there's demand for this very, very low-skilled labor. Mm -hmm. And it's where the the automation that is occurring uh, that that is is somewhat, it, 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 it you know, could has a chance of being revolutionary. And mm -hmm. the, the answer is it's like the old thing of when you're dealing with the exponential growth and you, you take a, uh, a board, a chessboard, and you put one piece of rice in the first uh, chess uh, square and then you double it each square. By the time you get to about the middle of the board, you have more rice than is available in the United States. So what happens is with things that are growing exponentially, there becomes a tipping point where the exponential growth very quickly surpasses what the alternative is. Okay. And the concern with the society right now, I think, is that we're approaching that exponential period where the growth of the technology is going at such a pace that uh, you don't, you know, the, the economy doesn't care if automation is uh, half as cheap, a third as cheap, 
80 you know cheap cheap cheaper than labor as soon as that automation becomes you know substantially cheaper than labor there's a tipping point that occurs and all of a sudden something new happens right so it, it it's the same thing with uh, consumer electronic devices you see them effectively and at some point in time they're just sort of the ease of their use and their ability to do what you want them to do becomes large enough that it just dominates the marketplace. Right. Records, the iPod was there for many, many years when record stores were still open. Yeah. It just got to the point of time where the society either got easy enough to use, easy enough to download, and then a switch was made, mm-hmm. and it moved completely towards digital uh, distribution of, of uh, music, effectively. Right. The okay. danger is the same sort of thing is kind of starting to occur in the low-skilled uh, labor market. And it's maybe starting to occur at Target, and it may start being occurring at these retailers, where it was the difference in price and the difference in availability and the difference in what you could find was large enough that the uh, department store would outperform Amazon. And then either something changed structurally in the economy that people became more comfortable buying things online. Mm -hmm. They became convinced that what they see online is exactly what they're going to get. They became comfortable with returning goods online. Mm -hmm. And then it just, it switches and it switches all at once. It's not a, a, a slow process because it's sort of a binary outcome. Either you're better off buying from Amazon or you're better off going to Target. And uh, right now, you're better off going from Target, and then Amazon's getting more and more and more competitive. As soon as Amazon gets a little bit more competitive than Target, everything switches to Amazon. Right. And that's, and that's, and that's, that's kind of the, the, the danger that we're seeing effectively. So the concern I see right now with the policies is that by restricting low-wage or low-skilled labor in the United States, you're going to accelerate this process of automation. And that uh, once that occurs... Uh, it may occur very, very quickly, mm-hmm. and the society may not have a lot of chance to adapt to it effectively. Right, and I don't want to spend too much more time right. on it. We have a lot to talk about, but the one thing I did want to bring up, this is part of a continuing conversation we've had right. over the past, uh, well, several months, actually, and we also talked about Uber drivers and self-driving automobiles, but right. I wanted to bring up, what about truck drivers? Right. You self-automate truck drivers, that's a million you, you jobs. A million right jobs disappear, and they're not going to disappear incrementally over time. Mm-hmm. It's either going to be that the truck driver uh, with the person in it is uh, more cost effective uh, and safer than the alternative, mm-hmm. or the alternative is going to be more cost effective and safer than the, what, what they have existing. And once that, tips. And once that tips, it's not like you go from you know a million truck drivers to uh, you know uh, 950,000 and then you try it. It's, it's going to be a very, very quick Movement, yeah, and that's the concern: is whether this is sort of the culturally we're ready for that sort of shift, or that that shift is very, very far off, and it's not doing it. But the the concept of sort of technological change is that the movement towards that eventuality is coming quicker and quicker. Now, the argument against this is that if you think back to two thousand mm-hmm. and you think to two thousand sixteen. Yeah. You're talking almost 20 years of technological development. Right. I, I, I think back how we were, you know, it, 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 it's not a massive change in the society. Now, the concern is that there are these changes brewing under the surface. Right. And once they 
break through, you're going to see the entire uh, entire economy sort of shift effectively. Okay, right. Cell phones, I think, probably the biggest change. Right, the smartphone. Right, right. But the smartphone, the cell phones. But they, I think in 2000 they did have. When was the first? I mean, when a smartphone was just there, people could talk verbally. You, you know, couldn't watch YouTube. You couldn't watch YouTube. Or they didn't have YouTube. Probably right, but that change hasn't sort of change the dynamic of the society whereas if you look from the 1920s to the 1950s yeah, right. you see this huge huge differential uh, that occurred in in sort of the the technology that's available so the argument against this is that the that the that something like electrical power was a change that could then affect the entire economy if you went from steam powered to electric power, then everything that was using steam powered could be electrically powered. All the factories that were using steam could be electrically powered. Mm-hmm. You went from 1 million horsepower in the factories of the United States to 10 million horsepower over the course of 15 years. The changes that we're seeing in information technology don't have that same sort of fundamental effect on the society. It doesn't cause cars to work better. It doesn't cause trains to work better. It doesn't cause airplanes to go faster. It doesn't cause companies necessarily to work more effectively. Uh, But there's possible that what's brewing under the surface is this machine learning uh, sort of uh, smart system uh, that if it does sort of occur, uh, could have a very disruptive effect. Sure, on artificial intelligence. Okay, we're, I'm gonna, we're gonna take a short break in about a minute or so. And I just wanted to say, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, you can call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago at 800-918-3114. And there you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, for more information, you can email us at info at zimwealth, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com, or visit our website, which is also zimwealth.com. And to call into the show uh, after our break, uh, you can call this number and speak directly to Mitch Zacks. That number is 866-472-5790. Uh, we're going to be right back after a short break. Oh, we still have 30 seconds left. So uh, do we want to uh, put a put a nice little uh, bow on this? When we come back, we could talk a little bit about Apple and sort of what we're talking about here. So that Apple's cash flow of in uh, for fiscal 2016 in the last three months, uh, you know, was what they're doing with their cash and if what you're seeing with it they're using their cash to pay dividends and to buy back stock okay let's take this pick that up after the break we'll be right back thank you for staying with us when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, 
give us a call at 1-800-918-3114. Or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114. Or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the second segment of The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zax, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, we were looking through the Zax Investment Management website. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw the uh, Mitch's Midweek Update, which okay. is always very interesting. And uh, we're talking about Warren Buffett's investment CPR. So we're talking about the changes that have been made to the uh, to the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio recently. They're pretty uh, meaningful, I think, or, or, or potentially, right? I mean, we're, we were looking uh, at one chart... Apple versus the S&P 500. Yeah. I like, I'll let you pick this up. And- no, it's just, it's, it's very interesting that Apple is beginning to be seen as a sort of cash generation machine as opposed to a technology company. They have a ton of cash. They have, they have, they have $246 billion in cash hmm. uh, as of the end of December, which is about $8 billion higher than last quarter. And their free cash flow for uh, fiscal year 2016 was about $53 billion. So they're generating about $53 billion in free cash, and that's enough to cover about their $12 billion in dividend payments. And they're, uh, you know, what what we think they've done is about $30 billion of share buybacks. So again, here's a company uh-huh. at the vanguard of technology uh, that is beginning to be owned by a traditional value investor who is focused on uh, dividends and share repurchases. And they're deciding with their $53 billion they're generating mm-hmm. to pay some out in dividends directly right. and with the rest to buy back stock. Sure. And then so the, the concern here is that this is not this, – this can continue to happen and Apple's price can continue to go up. Uh, but it's very different than what would have been happening 20 or 30 years ago where a company like Apple with that level of cash flow would – be investing in all sorts of different areas. Of well, I was going to say, it's a, they're not like uh, the way Jeff Bezos at Amazon is. Right, right, of trying to go into different areas all the time. Correct. So it's like the conventional wisdom is that the Apple strategy uh, will effectively pay out. But if you look at Berkshire Hathaway's uh, major holdings, uh, things like Wells Fargo, Coca-Cola, uh, Apple, uh, Kraft even, these are, these are things, uh, Kraft to a lesser extent, but these are things that we hold in our dividend strategy. Oh, So what we're trying to do in our dividend strategy is identify companies with higher than average dividend yield, uh, lower than average uh, short interest relative to shares outstanding, and okay. higher than average uh, cash flow yield. So we're trying to identify companies where the dividend that they are going to be paying is sustainable over long periods of time, which is somewhat similar to what Buffett is doing, which is trying, if you statistically look at his picks, they're trying to identify companies uh, that have a low volatility of earnings 
over time and are trading at sort of attractive uh, prices. Sure. So if you if you analyze Berkshire Hathaway's movement over time, a lot of it has to do with this concept of leverage and being able to obtain sort of funds for free through the float of an insurance company. So if we take a step back and talk a little bit about this, sure. the way an insurance company, insurance is very strange because you're paid up front for a service that you offer into the future. Right. So someone pays you up front for, to insure against a tornado and your payment to them occurs at some point over the next year if a tornado hits. Mm-hmm. The difference between what you read, so you're given all this money and you're given sort of free access to that money. They're right. not, you're not charged interest on that. Mm-hmm. So if you take that money and you invest it in sort of very, very stable companies that don't have a lot of fluctuation in terms of earnings that are attractive valuation, sort of the type of companies we have conceivably in our dividend strategy, it's the combination of the return of that strategy uh, plus the leverage over time due to the float that can generate a very, very high a level of return effectively. So, so w- 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 but what's interesting is that the same sort of types of companies that we're seeing sort of as major holdings in Berkshire Hathaway are also holdings in our uh, dividend strategy. Okay. And then, so basically you're looking for a nice return with low risk. The lower risk companies, you, you would think that the higher risk companies will generate better returns over time. The more volatile companies should generate higher returns because they're riskier. But what really goes on is the lower volatile companies actually generate a higher level of return over time. Over a longer and period. The time. reason may be that people are constrained in their ability to use leverage. If you're an individual and you don't have access to uh, leverage, you can't borrow money, you're going to go out into the stock market and you're going to say, well, I want a company that can triple in price. I want a company that's incredibly volatile, that's worth $10 last month and could be worth $50 three months from now. Right. Right. But if you're a large sort of corporation, you, 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 you essentially say, well, if I'm not constrained and instead I, I can go and pick a company with a very, very stable stock price and a very, very stable earnings over time. If people are constrained, they want a higher rate of return, but they can't get it by leveraging these low volatile companies. So instead, they move to the higher volatile companies. And as a result, the higher volatile companies in terms of volatility of earnings and price movement mm-hmm. uh, tend to underperform over time. So sort of high beta, high volatile companies will tend to underperform the market over time. And that's why if you look towards companies that have higher than average dividend yield and lower than average short interest relative to shares outstanding, you lean toward companies with a more stable earning stream generally over time right. and a more muted stock price over time. And what I think Berkshire Hathaway is doing is they're essentially leveraging this lower end. And instead of leveraging it from a, a brokerage that as soon as the prices fall, they come back and they say, we need to get the money back. Uh, they're leveraged using the float of the insurance company. And then the insurance company does not try and uh, gain market share at the effect of losing profitability. So they're always concerned about making sure that the float is positive. And so there is something here about combining a positive float within a uh, equity strategy that is in lower volatile, stable companies over time. And the reason is it lends itself to leverage. So if you have no cost of capital and you can leverage these low uh, low volatile companies by like, not a lot. I mean, we're not talking two to one leverage, okay. maybe 1.2 to one or 1.3 to one, 
right? And say you're, the low volatile companies can outperform the market by maybe 2% over uh, a year, mm-hmm. uh, and then you leverage that uh, by 20 or 30%, and you never have a margin call, you can generate a very, very incredible return over long periods of time. So it's a combination of these several factors coming together. Uh, many of which are not duplicable by uh, other investors. Uh, the one is du- that is duplicable is this concept of the anomaly that exists uh, for sort of low volatile stable companies over time, effectively. Okay, and so that's and a lot of it has to do with uh, the scale too. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is obviously a gigantic. It's getting very large, so it's getting much harder to sort of snowball that capital over time. And I- but the, what I think an individual investor should take from all this is that. What, it, it's time in the market that generates the returns. Okay. It's not the trying to look for the hottest stock that's going to be doubling and tripling in price. It really is staying with stable companies where the dividend is going to be maintained over extended periods of time. Right. And letting those returns compound themselves over time. And the, the difference in return is just how long it takes you to get to the next level. If you're at an 8% or a 9% annualized rate of return, every eight or nine years, you're going to see a doubling of your assets. Right. If you can keep invested, not spend any of the money, uh, that means after eight years, you've doubled. After 16 years, you've gone up by four. After, 30, after 24 years, uh, you, you've gone up by eight. And after 32 years, you've gone up by 16 times your initial investment. So if you can invest in the market, not touch your money, stay invested for a 32-year period, you're going to see about a 15 to 16 times increase in the amount of money you have invested in the market if you see a a 8% annualized rate of return. So if you get that to 10 or 12%, that doubling, that compounding comes at a much, much faster rate. But the key is to make sure that the money stays invested the dividends are not taken out, the fees are kept as low as you possibly can, mm-hmm. and you stay invested over that long period of time. Mm-hmm. And again, every eight years with a 9% annualized rate of return, you should see a doubling of the assets. The issue is that over that eight-year period, you have a period of time when the market comes under pressure, you'll have a period of time when a collapse happens, and you'll have a period of euphoria at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And you have to ignore all of those and just stay invested over the entire period of time. And in my mind, that's Buffett's, uh, or that's Berkshire Hathaway's uh, greatest lesson, is that you can invest in the equity markets and you can stay invested over long periods of time and keep your fees as low as they possibly can be over long periods of time, you can generate a very, very high rate of return. It's when you try and make that high rate of return or you try and double the money tomorrow or next week or in a year or in two years that you start getting attracted to segments of the market that will not generate that high level of return because there's too many people that either don't have access to leverage or that don't have sort of the, the... personality to or patience to wait over long periods of time right instead you wind up trying to time the market trying to time the market you want to make the return you don't want to lose the money you want to get into the market and you want to get out when the going is bad and so you don't get hit when the market goes down and instead what you see very clearly look at the last uh, great financial crisis which was uh, probably the worst thing we've seen since the great depression in 2008 People who invested in 2007, stayed invested, ignored the fluctuation, uh, you know, did very well. People who panicked did not. Right. And right now, it's, it's again, the market is beginning to attract a lot of new assets coming in. Individuals are getting very excited about the market. And we have to make sure that for new clients coming in, 
new people to the market. They understand it is not an easy game. A market goes up and down over time. And the key is to be able to invest in high quality stocks and stay invested over long periods of time. Effectively. That sounds like a great opportunity for me to give out that phone number. Okay, fair enough. Again. Um, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago, 800 918 3114. Discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family for retirement. Uh, for more information, you can email us at info at zimwealth, that's Z-I-M-wealth.com. Visit the website, zimwealth.com. Um, and we'll also, if you call into 800-918-3114, uh, we'll send you a free stock market outlook, uh, which is a very comprehensive monthly uh, look, I believe the, the new one is going to come out uh, a week from tomorrow after the... Um, oh, it's a very nice institutional quality outlook for the market. Again, we don't believe in timing the market. Right. Uh, and we don't want to be chasing the hottest stocks. What we want to do is kind of stay invested for long periods of time with strategies that statistically can outperform the benchmark. Uh, and try and keep the fees as low as we possibly can get them. Warren Buffett was interviewed last week. He said, I don't know anyone who knows how to time the market. It's, it's you think not, if somebody I, did, it would be him. It's not, it's not even something. It, it, it's like you're trying to predict irrationality. So it, yeah. you can't. it's a very hard thing to do. You're trying to predict when everyone will become irrational, either to the upside or when everyone will become irrational, either to the downside. It's trying to predict mass psychology. You're trying to predict a fad, when the fad will begin, when the fad will end. You may know it's going to happen. You may know happen. the fad is happening. You know the fads will occur, and you know that you're in a fad sometimes, but it's very hard to say when it will end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, statistically, the best course of action is to invest in the market and then stay invested over long periods of time. Right. Okay, so let's get to another uh, segment of the Zach's Investment okay. Management uh, webpage, and that's the Mitch on the Markets uh, okay. segment. One is called, uh, I like this title very much, Forget Politics, exclamation point, Focus on Fundamentals. Totally. It's a very good headline. And what we really are trying to say there is that what drives stock prices are earnings and interest rates. Right. As earnings go up, stock prices go up. As interest rates go down, stock prices go down. And it's not just earnings in aggregate, it's earnings per share. So you have a share of stock, you have earnings for each one of those shares. If the earnings per share number goes up, the value of that stock has to increase. If interest rates go down, the value of that stock has to increase. And what's really, yes, everyone's very excited about the new administration in terms of uh, equity investors, but what really is going down, which hasn't been widely reported, is that interest rates have, have uh, they were rising, and mm-hmm. then they stopped. They That's started right. coming down a little bit. That's very, very positive for the market. So you have a situation where interest rates seem under pressure. They can't seem to rise very dramatically. Uh, they're, they're actually tr- ticking downward, and at the same time, you have earnings per share increasing due to share buybacks and due to increased stimulus spending and all this other stuff. So what's driving the market higher is not necessarily animal spirits. It's more this concept that earnings per share are increasing yeah. and interest rates are under pressure. Now, some of the some of the reason that we're, we're, we're seeing just, I don't want to say euphoria in the market, but a very, very active movement by individual investors into the stock market has to do with that sort of psychology is uh, changing. But the fundamentals of the market are very definitely in this point in time driving it higher. You're not talking about a situation, if we're talking that there's a new administration, earnings are missing their expectations, and interest rates are going up, uh, the market would not be hitting all-time highs. Right, right. And for Q4 earnings, which you just mentioned, uh, we're, uh, we're about a wrap for Q4. I think yeah. maybe uh, 85, 90% of the companies have, uh, have reported. 
all-time record earnings. Right. So that's considerable. I mean, it's, it's some of it's this earnings are hitting an all-time record in aggregate. The market's hitting an all-time record in aggregate. Right. So what do we know about the future? We know at some point in time, earnings are going to be higher than they are going to be today. They're going to pull back at some point in time. But the concept is that over long periods of time, you're going to see an acceleration of earnings. And if these policies that the administration is proposing actually are passed, it could cause a massive sort of borrowing from the future to today. Yeah. And it could really jumpstart the market going forward. So we could, the, the, the bull market might have uh, a little bit longer to run in my mind. Okay. At what point would you say, all right, here's something that's happened that I'm a little bit more wary of? When more interest of a- rates start to rise dramatically or when earnings estimates start really missing their expectations. Right. And the exact opposite is happening right now. Right. Sure. And well, it seems like the, the forward-looking uh, um, earnings estimates tend to be, get rolled back a little bit ahead of, well, Q, Q1 will be mid-next yeah. month. Or there, I there's guess going to be some earnings level. management. The more sophisticated, the larger cap the company is, the more likely they're going to take their earnings expectations and uh, pull them back uh, for the next quarter. So that they're able to beat, more or less. So they're able to beat, yes. Right, right. And also, we're seeing uh, revenue growth as well with the earnings We're seeing very, very strong revenue growth. We're seeing very, very strong earnings growth. Uh, All of that is is relatively positive uh, for the market. Sure, so it's not just accounting tricks. Right, as of February 15th, looking at the fourth quarter results, you have about 380 uh, companies from the S&P 500 reporting Earnings for those members were up 7.2% uh, on a year-over-year basis on uh, 5% year-over-year higher revenues with uh, 54% coming in uh, higher than revenue estimates. So the portion beating both earnings and revenue estimates is 40%, and uh, growth is on track to reach its highest level in two years, but total earnings are on track to reach a new quarterly record in this coming quarter. Yeah. So what you're seeing essentially is that it's not just – you, you are seeing fundamentals pick up. At the same time, you're seeing that if we look where interest rates are now in uh, beginning of March relative to the beginning of uh, end of December, they're actually a little bit lower, I believe, than where right. we started the year. Mm-hmm. Interest rates have gone down. Earnings have come in better than expectations. And looming in the distance is this tax change that is going to effectively reduce Taxes on corporations. It'll be a huge windfall. A huge windfall for uh, the bottom line for all these public huge, uh, Yes. Again, what drives it? It's the earnings per share and it's the interest rates. Right. So you look at this and uh, stocks remain cheap relative to fixed income. And yeah. individuals who were only looking at fixed income mm-hmm. and saying, I just want to get the highest level of return on fixed income because the uh, Specter of uh, 2008 and 2000 looms so large in my mind are now moving towards towards equities. But there's a there's a very clear indication that you're seeing the corporate equity market pick up, not just because of policies, but because of rising earnings uh, estimates and uh, lower interest rates. Okay, uh, how much time do we have left here, Greg? A um, minute. Okay. So so the question is, the key is not to get too worked up with this. So the right. key is not again. If you can keep your debt and equity mix consistent with your risk level over long periods of time, that is the best course of action. Right. If you start moving more towards uh, uh, getting all invested in equities or, or moving all towards uh, debt uh, and trying to change that over time based on what you think is going on in the world, you're not going to do as well. Right. So if you have a 60-40 mix with equity and debt, 
stick with the 60-40 mix. Don't look at uh, what's going to happen with uh, corporate tax rates and say, well, we want to increase it to 80-20. Let's hold it right there. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick with us. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. This is the third and final segment of The Steady Investor today. We're sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. I'm here with Mitch Zach's Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zach's Investment Management. Uh, to speak with Mitch directly, you can call 866 866- Four seven two five seven nine zero, and uh, but or you can also email us at zim. Or I'm sorry, at info at zimwealth.com. And Mitch, there's actually some mail here for you. Okay. Uh, an email from Alan from Lexington, Kentucky, who says, with such strong gains recently in stocks, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people saying that prices have risen too far too fast. This kind of goes back to what right. we were saying a little bit. Uh, are stocks too expensive to invest in now? Is a big decline around the corner? And should I wait to invest? You should not wait to invest. And Alan, the best way I can explain this to you is we can first of all look at uh, you know how the market is valued relative to where it's been historically and uh, to uh, what other instruments are valued at. So the market's right market's price to earnings ratio right now is around 18 times uh, trailing uh, 18 times trailing earnings. So stocks are, are a little bit more expensive now than their 25 year averages. But if you look at stocks relative to bonds, stocks are actually uh, relatively cheap. Uh, so the yield on the 30-year U.S. Treasury is still under 3%, and the 10-year is paying about 2.3%. So again, the S&P 500 dividend yield is about 2%, mm-hmm. and the 10-year Treasury is about 2.3%. You can buy the S&P 500 and get a 2% dividend yield and get earnings that grow over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. or you can give the money to the U.S. government, lend it, 
they get a 2.3% guaranteed annual rate of return. Yeah, 30 that, basis points more. Right, 3% more for sacrificing all this upside. So stocks are definitely cheap. And if you think about it, if you own the entire S&P 500 in aggregate versus the tax base for the United States, they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. Even though it appears that there's less risk by owning the 10-year treasuries, if the S&P 500, something drastic happens, something's going to happen uh, to the U.S. Treasury's ability to repay uh, their debt. So they're completely intertwined. You're In one case, you're investing in all of the sort of the equities in the U.S. In another case, you're investing in the government debt. And equities right now are very, very cheap relative to bonds. So from a valuation perspective, equities are still attractive relative to bonds because interest rates are not rising as we're seeing stimulus package hit the market and as we're seeing earnings estimates uh, rise and as we're seeing earnings reported uh, greater than expectations. But Alan, the best way to figure out this answer is to try and think back in time. And here we are and we're sitting in 2017 and the market's hitting all-time highs, the S&P 5 for the Dow's, uh, you know, uh, past 20,000. The S&P 500 is at 2,300, et cetera, uh, and think back now 10 or 15 years and say it's 1996, and you're saying is now the right time to invest? Is, mm-hmm. a, is, a, is a crash around the corner? Or 1997, mm-hmm. is now the right time to invest? And, uh, you know, no one, there were some hints, but no one knew in 1996 there was going to be a giant uh, dot-com bubble that was going to uh, inflate and collapse in 2000. Right. And someone said, well, what if you had known that? Would you have waited until 2001? The decision in retrospect of whether you invested in 1995, 1996, 1997, 1998, or 1999 doesn't look that important as you move on in time. The same way the decision of whether you invest in in February of 2017, 2018, 2016, 2015, as we go forward 10, 15 years is is going to be immaterial. Right. And so the the answer is that if you can invest and understand that your investment at some point in time will have a correction Mm -hmm. and there will be a crash in the market at some point in time over the next uh, 10 years and you ignore this. It doesn't matter. So the point is that you, 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 it's not a question that you should be invested in the market. And the key is to get invested and stay invested over long periods of time. Right. So the answer, the, the answer is not should you invest now or should you invest later or should you invest next week? The answer is how long should you be invested for? Right. If you can be invested for a 10 to 15 year period, it is immaterial whether you buy now when stocks are slightly expensive relative to they've been historically and cheap relative to bonds, or you wait till after uh, they rally another 20%. The point is that you're too focused on the potential of a drawdown or a pullback. Was it better to invest in December of 2016 or February of 2016? Well, the market fell in January of 2016 10%. But in retrospect, it it pulled it back. So if you invested in December, you would have gone down 10%, you would have gone up 10%, and you'd be hitting new highs. If you invest in January, you'd have an extra 10% return. So all that is doing, and that 10% return now over a 10-year period is going to only be an extra 1% per year. Right. And so as time goes on, it's the movement of the market higher due to increasing earnings uh, that's driving this whole thing uh, forward. So it's not a question of trying to time 
oh, are we about to have a 10% correction? Let's delay it. It's realizing that regardless of whether we have a 10% correction or not, you have to be invested in the market. You have to stay invested over long periods of time. Right. And so the question is not when do you want to invest. The question is how long should you invest for and how long can you invest for? And if you're investing where you need the money next year, investing in the market may not be a good idea. If you're investing where you need the market money in three years' time, also investing may not be a great idea. But if you're investing and you do not need to touch the money for a 10-year period, and you can psychologically deal with that money falling in value by 20 or 30%, you should be invested as much into the stock market as you can. And when the market pulls back, as it absolutely will, you have to be able to ignore it and continue to hold over periods of time. Okay. Well, is that also a time that you start buying more stocks cheaper, or is that another I, thing that you can get away from? I try and avoid that. I try and make sure that clients have an allocation that's consistent with the risk level, mm-hmm. and the allocation is stay is kept the same over long periods of time. So if you if your risk level is such that you should have 80% equity and 20% in fixed income, you want to be in that allocation regardless of whether you think the market is undervalued, overvalued, fairly valued. When you're talking about the market, it's very, very different than when you're talking about an individual equity. An individual equity can be massively overvalued. Mm -hmm. You can invest in it and you can never get your money back. It's possible. You could find something that's trading way, way at a PE of 60. Something happens. The company uh, experiences bankruptcy. You invest. Your investment becomes worthless. When you're talking about a diversified portfolio like the S&P 500, Mm. you have the benefit that in aggregate, you're going to see the market appreciate over time. So if you're talking and saying, is it a good time to buy MLPs, it becomes a very hard conversation to have. It's possible there's a tax change. It's possible they're completely over there. It's possible they'll continue to grow. But if you're talking about buying the market as a whole, you know how the game ends. So you know what effectively happens in the future 10 to 15 years out. So you don't know about what happens individually for any one company. Could Target uh, eventually collapse? Sure. Or even one industry. Could Amazon go under? Absolutely. Mm. Could Google be replaced five years from now by a natural language search engine that's uh, being invented in an Asian country? Absolutely. All these things can happen. But in aggregate, you know the market cannot go to zero. And you know when the market falls too much, the entire society starts working to try and pump the market up. And so you, you, the chance of sort of a cataclysmic response to the market doesn't exist. You're comfortable with the market over time because the market as a whole is a stable entity. That's not to say it can't fall 10 or 15% in a month on no news like happened in January because people started getting worried, but you know how it ends. Mm-hmm. With right. individual companies, you don't know how it ends. You could end badly uh, in terms of your investment in an individual company. You could find a, a stock that's trading at $2 that you think is worth $8, and it's trading at $2 for a reason, and then it goes to zero. This happens all the time in investing. But if you own the market as a whole, and you have a diversified portfolio with similar risk characteristics to a large broad-based benchmark like an S- the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000 growth or the Russell 1000 value, you have a confidence that fluctuations to the downside are temporary and will be reversed over time effectively. Right. It may not be reversed immediately. It may take years. It may take three years. It may take four years. But you know over long periods of time, the trend of the market is upward. The market's history is a triumph of the optimist. 
And if you can invest in the market and stay invested, you can do very well. It's when you start looking at segments of the market and say, I'm only going to buy the tech stocks. Right. I'm only going to buy the banking stocks. I'm only going to buy the stocks that are going to benefit from Trump's plan that things can run into problems. But if you have a diversified portfolio and you stay invested over long periods of time, you know how the game ends. The game ends with the market heading higher. It's very, very hard to see that reality when the market is under pressure, but that's exactly what you need to do. So you diversify and you're even in uh, industries that maybe aren't expected to gain. Aren't expected to gain that you do not like, that you think are bad industries. If you're diversified across sectors, across capitalization, you own the market, you own the collective economic output of those companies in the United States that are publicly traded. That collective economic output advances over time as long as the society doesn't fail. Right. And that's, I mean, that's that's really as long as the society does not fail. And we're talking massive warlike failure, the economy. And at that point, you've got other problems. Uh, But, uh, you know, you're going to see the, uh, you're going to see your investment increase over time. So the advantage of having a diversified portfolio with risk characteristics similar to the benchmark is you have confidence that when that market falls 10 or 15%, which it absolutely will, that you do absolutely nothing and you continue to hold. Even if you think the next month it can go down a little bit farther because whatever is incorporated into the market hasn't fully reflected in, in market prices effectively. Okay. I mean, that's the steady investor, right? Remain it's, steady. It's, Keep it remain steady, steady over long periods of time. It will, it will work very well. So for, for Alan's question, the, it's, it's immaterial whether you think the market's going to go up or down. If the market goes down, it's just an opportunity to buy it. The key question for Alan is where is his end game? If his end game is 10 years out, 15 years out, you should be indifferent between buying now, waiting a little bit. Uh, but to answer this question, I don't think we're sitting on a massive potential downside to the market. So I don't think we're 20 or 30% massively overvalued given where interest rates are okay. and uh, given where earnings are at. Well, even okay, if you so gave back 15%, if, there would still be print much break in. Right, if the, if interest rates were at 8 or 10%, this market would you would be like this is crazy. Yeah. Right. But interest rates are two two point three percent on the ten year treasury. Mm-hmm. So in, in such a low interest rate environment, you will pay more money for future cash flows, and that's exactly what people are doing uh, right now. They're willing to pay money, and interest rates are not showing signs of rising because global labor force is increasing. You're seeing this downward pressure on interest rates, not upward pressure on interest rates. Right. Okay. Well, Alan, thank you very much for your question. I hope there's a nice, uh, nice comprehensive answer for you. Um, and speaking of interest rates, we only have a couple more minutes okay. left, Mitch. I just wanted to say, all right, so uh, we're going to see the Fed Reserve get back together again uh, mid-March, so a couple weeks from now. What do you, what do you, well, first of all, what's your prediction? Are they going to raise in March or are they going to pass? You have a president who in his speech starts talking about he's a great president because the market is going up. If the interest rates rise, the market goes down, he's going to put pressure on the Fed to delay raising interest rates. The Fed will keep rates lower for longer than the market is expecting, probably due to political pressure, unless something happens politically. So you're, you're talking about... Nothing in the market really I, could do. Another 300-point you, you, you could make an argument that uh, they should raise in March. You could make an argument they should not raise in March. I don't think they want to pick a fight with the administration where you have elements of the administration who want to audit the Fed, the Federal Reserve. Okay. And so if you're the Federal Reserve and you care about that... Uh, entity, the you you don't want to have more oversight. 
So if that means just delaying your your, your interest rate rise a little bit, I think they would lean towards doing it. Okay. If, look at it this way. If they delay it, it, nothing really happens, right? They're not going to get blamed if things overheat and inflation start because it'll, it'll take a long period of time for the overheating to occur. Uh, you also have a lot of disruption potentially in Europe. You have a lot of political turmoil of in terms of nationalism and protectionism. And I think that they are going to lean towards saying, listen, things are working very well. Let's let it run for a little bit longer before we make a change. Okay, Mr. Sachs, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you very much for joining us on The Steady Investor. We'll see you next week. It's a pleasure, Mark. See you next week. Okay. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 